You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. John chapter 13 marks a distinct shift in the gospel of John. Uh, Really, the way John's gospel is laid out is so unique and so beautiful. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of course, have their own flavor and style, but John's style in writing his gospel is so unique, so different from the previous three gospels. And here as we get to John chapter 13, Jesus now is going to turn his attention primarily to his disciples. We've already begun to see a little glimpse of that in the way that he treated the crowds in John chapter 12. You might remember when the Greeks came to him and asked to see Jesus. Philip then went to Andrew and Andrew and Philip brought this request to Christ. And his response was to tell them of the need of a seed to enter into the ground to die so that it might bear much fruit. And it was Jesus's way in one sense of saying no to that initial visitation of the Greeks in order to say yes to the cross, which would then lead him to great fruitfulness, which would reach out far beyond just this little pocket of Greeks, but into the entire Greek, Gentile, pagan world. And so Jesus has already begun separating himself from the crowds to minister more exclusively to his disciples. And at the end of John chapter 12, of course, John uh, had to give an explanation, an explanation for the great and complete rejection of Christ, especially by the religious leaders. And so we found him quoting at the end of John chapter 12 from the book of Isaiah to explain the blindness uh, within the eyes and the hardness within the heart of those who had been rejecting Jesus uh, at this point. And so John has presented Christ. He's presented the case for Christ. He's presented the identity of Christ. And just as John said in the beginning of his book, he told us that the light came into the world and uh, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And so John has given us now in the first 12 chapters a record of that rejection of Christ. But now with that rejection, Jesus turns his attention to his disciples. So we're at a moment in John's gospel where Jesus is about ready to die. And if there was ever a moment he could be excused to think introspectively, to minister to himself personally, and to forget about his disciples, this would have been that moment. But Christ, our Savior, is also our great servant. And he, in this hour of desperation, ministered and and spoke and and blessed his disciples. And so here today, in John 13, verse 1 through 20, we have a lesson that Jesus gives uh, to his men, to his disciples. Really the first lesson, so to speak, of this entire section. So let's read in verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
And really, verse 1 is sort of a hinge verse in John's gospel. He's given us the rejection of Christ all the way through chapter 12. But here in verse 1 of chapter 13, Jesus has this knowledge, first of all, that his hour had come. Now, this is significant. Uh, he'd announced this in chapter 12, verse 23, that his hour had now come. But he had said previously that his hour had not yet come. And so here we know that Jesus is conscious of the coming cross. And with that consciousness, understanding, verse 1, that he was about to depart out of this world to the Father. I love, first of all, that John refers to it as this world. Uh, and this phrase will be repeated often now in this next section, 40 times as we get close to the end of the life of Christ, this world will be referenced. And the reference is specific, not the world, but this world. And I think that there's a little bit of an allusion to the uh, reality that the world that Jesus was ministering in at this moment in his life was not the world as he has cr had created it to be, but a fallen world, just a shadow of its former self. And so he has this knowledge that he's going to depart from this world to the Father. And this was the longing of the heart of Christ to return to the Father. But notice there at the end of verse 1, it says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And this really is the introductory phrase of this entire section of the Gospel of John. This will be Jesus loving his disciples to the end. And, and if you had a red letter edition Bible in your hand, you could turn and you'd see that in the next few chapters, there's a lot of red ink because Jesus is going to teach his disciples. In other words, what did Jesus do in order to love his disciples to the end? Well, he taught them. He taught them. He taught them. He taught them. One of the greatest outworkings of the love of Christ is the teaching of Christ, uh, that he might sanctify us and cleanse us with the washing of water uh, by the word, Ephesians 5, verse 26. And so he loved his disciples to the end with the teaching uh, that he gave to them. Now, verse 2, in this particular scene, it says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, verse 4, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And so we have this shocking scene. First of all, we see in verse 2 that the devil is involved. He has put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Christ. Now, Jesus had predicted this way back in John chapter 6, verse 70 and 71. And we'll see at the end of chapter 13 that Satan will actually enter into Judas at one point. But here, Judas is under the influence of the devil, and it is in his heart to betray Christ. 
But before we get to the betrayal, we see this moment where Jesus is at this supper with his disciples. And he does this incredible thing at this meal. He takes these seven steps. First of all, he gets up from the supper. He, he, uh, he rises from the meal. Then he takes his outer garments and he lays them aside. Then he takes a towel. Then he takes that towel and he ties it around his waist. Then he takes water and he pours it into a basin. And then he begins to wash the feet of the disciples with that water. And then he begins to wipe their feet with the towel that was wrapped around uh, his waist. Now this, in one sense, is the great humiliation of Jesus Christ. The, the humility with which Christ ministered to his disciples. You see, in, in, in a house, when you would walk into a home, this was the responsibility of the lowest slave within that house. When guests came over, the lowest servant, if they had any, would take that responsibility and would begin to wash the feet of the guests that had come into the home. And Jesus himself, takes that responsibility upon himself and begins to wash the feet of the disciples. Now, the important thing in all of this is to understand the mindset with which Jesus uh, fulfilled this duty in shore. And the mindset is listed for us in verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing, number one, that the Father had given all things into his hands, knowing, number two, that he had come from God, and number three, that he was going back to God. In other words, as Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, it's not that he forgot his identity. It's not that there was this moment where there was just sort of this blip within his consciousness where he, uh, you know, ceased to realize his position. No, he knew. He knew that he had come from God. He knew that he was going to God. He knew that the Father had committed all things into his hands. And with that understanding inside of his mind, with that uh, mentality uh, within him, Jesus then went and served and washed the feet of his disciples. And we're going to see the, the outworkings of this uh, act of service in just a moment. But of course, this reminds us of the incarnation itself. Jesus lowering himself to become flesh, dwell among us, and die a death, even the death on the cross. In fact, it's fairly interesting that in John 13, Jesus took seven steps to serve his disciples by washing their feet and wiping them with the towel. You remember them. He rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water into a basin, began to wash their feet, and to wipe them with the towel. These are seven distinct steps that Christ took. Well, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that when it came to the incarnation, Jesus took seven steps as well. He says in Philippians 2 verse 6, he says, though he was in the form of God, this is the similar to the mentality that Jesus had, knowing that the Father had committed all things into his hands, that he was going to God and that he had come from God. And so here in Philippians 2, 6, 
Though he was in the form of God, he, number one, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he was willing to set aside his position to serve us. Number two, verse seven, he made himself nothing. Then he took the form of a servant. Then, Paul writes, he was born in the likeness of men. Then, he continues, he was found in human form. And then he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And finally, number seven, even death on a cross. And so these seven steps of humiliation to wash the disciples' feet are also similar to the seven steps that Jesus took to become flesh, dwell among us, die even a death on the cross cross. And so what I want you to see at this moment in the text is that the Lord of all, the King of glory, the supreme being, the creator of the universe, the one who, as Paul writes in Colossians 1, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He tells us that by him all things were created, that he is before all things, and that in him all things hold together. He tells us that he is the head of the body, the church, that he's the beginning that he's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, and that in him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What I want you to see is that this being, Christ, the God-man, that he served his disciples with this, you know, gross, despicable, despised, uh, rejected position, that of the lowest servant within the home in washing the feet of his disciples. I just want you to be amazed that God would do this, that you would be amazed that God would wash the dirty feet of sinful men. Now, verse six, as we pick up our narrative, it says that he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And we'll see the afterward in just a moment. But Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why, verse 11, he said, not all of you are clean. And so we have this little dialogue between Peter and Jesus, and this dialogue uh, provides for us really a break in the text. Uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples a lesson, and we're going to see what this lesson is in a moment. It's basically a lesson about serving one another, washing each other's feet. But here we take a break from that lesson into the lesson of actually just being practically cleansed by Christ. And this is how the lesson unfolds. Jesus is going around the room He's washing the feet of the individual disciples, and eventually he gets to Peter. Now, we don't know if Peter was uh, near the beginning of the group or at the end of the group. We don't know which number he was in the line, but eventually he gets to Peter, and Peter questions Jesus. He says, Lord, 
do you wash my feet? And Jesus just says to him, well, hey, you know, Peter, what I'm doing now, you don't understand, but in a moment you will understand. Now, Peter has never needed to understand in order to speak. And so he replies and he says to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. You know, it's, it's, it's as if Peter is looking around at all these other disciples who have allowed Jesus thus far to wash their feet. And it's like he's saying, listen, these men, I don't know how they found it within their puny little conscience, consciences to, to allow you to wash their feet, but I will never allow you to wash my feet. <laughs> uh, you know, a little bit of uh, perhaps pride there. But on the other hand, we can really appreciate what Peter is saying. What he's saying, in one sense, is a completely accurate and healthy thing to confess. Because what he's saying to Jesus is, you are in an altogether different category from me. And you, in your category, should never wash my feet in my category. And when Peter is saying that, what he's saying is, this isn't right. The, you know, this is all off. And when Peter is saying that, he's correct. Jesus did not rightfully take that position of servant, but he willfully took that position of servant. He is still the king of glory, and Peter understands something is not right. You are above this position. And so he tells Jesus, you'll never wash my feet. But Jesus then replies to Peter and says, well, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And then Peter, you know, responds with this awkward statement of, okay, well, if that's the case, then wash my whole body, my head, my hands, wash all of me, Lord, because I want to be unified with you. And then Jesus gives him this lesson. And this is where we want to camp for just a moment. He says, to Peter, listen, the one that is bathed does not need to wash, you know, all of his body except for just his feet. Uh, but he's completely clean. And then he says, but you're not all clean because he knew that Judas Iscariot was amongst them and that he was unclean. So because of that little description, we know that Jesus isn't merely saying that it's good hygiene to wash your feet in that era, walking on dirt roads and amongst livestock and all of that. We know that Jesus isn't saying that, but that there's something spiritual because he, when he speaks of cleanness, he talks of Judas, who is unclean. Not that Judas hadn't bathed, but that his heart was unclean. So, what is Jesus saying? It seems that Jesus is giving a simple lesson on practical sanctification within this life. In other words, when you come to Christ, you are bathed and cleansed and washed with the righteousness that is Christ's. You are made whole and complete. Your filthy garments are cast away and the righteousness that belongs to Jesus then belongs to you. And you are clean in the sight of God. However, you then journey through this world. And as you journey through this world, you come in contact with things that defile, things that dirty, things that uh, 
bring a certain amount of uncleanness into your life. Just as in that era, they would clean themselves, bathe themselves, but then they'd put on their sandals and they'd walk from place to place on dirt roads that had also been inhabited by livestock and their feet would be dirty. They would be clean, but their feet would be dirty. Thus the need to wash the feet when entering into the house of another. And so Jesus is using this, you know, cultural necessity to illustrate this point concerning our personal sanctification. That when our hearts are made clean, as opposed to who Judas was, but when our hearts are made clean by the blood of Christ, we still need to continually pursue a relationship with Jesus so that he can then wash us and cleanse us, uh, practically speaking, because our feet are dirtied as we walk through this world. And of course, one of the greatest ways for our feet to be cleansed uh, in a spiritual sense is through the water of the word of Christ. Uh, Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 27, when he, Paul speaking of marriage says that Christ, as he decided to sanctify us and set apart unto God, he says, you know, that he took the church that he might sanctify her and cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And so the word of God cleanses us. And I encourage you to continue to stay strong in your relationship with God in his word, to pour over his word, read his word, and allow your feet to be cleansed with the word of God. But another way that we find cleansing is through repentance as well, confession. Uh, to ask the Lord to forgive us, Matthew 6, verse 12, forgive us our debts. And uh, 1 John 1, 9, to confess to one another that as we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the cleansing of the feet. Now, in verse 12, we snap back to the original message that Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples. It says when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments. And so everything is complete. He puts his outer garments back on the towel, the basin, the water. Those are all done and resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so Jesus then begins to apply uh, this message to his disciples. First of all, he speaks to them concerning, uh, you know, what he had done to them. You know, he says, look, I'm your teacher and I'm your Lord and I've been willing to wash your feet. So you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, of course, the question is, what is Jesus trying to say to these men? It would be good to ask, is Jesus trying to institute a ceremony called foot washing? Well, you know, I would give this answer to that question. First of all, you don't see 
in the book of Acts or in the epistles, a ceremony of foot washing uh, practiced in those contexts. Uh, you do see foot washing mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 5, but it's spoken of about widows who were faithful to be hospitable to others. And this was a cultural sign of hospitality. So I don't think that you can build a strong case for Jesus simply giving to his disciples here a ceremony called foot washing. Uh, in fact, I think that if that's the interpretation of this text, then we've allowed Jesus to set the bar very low. I think Jesus is setting the bar much higher and telling us that we need to actually serve one another and care for one another's needs. So does this mean that if you've ever been to a church service where there has been some kind of foot washing ceremony that they've been in sin? No, not, not necessarily. Uh, it can be a wonderful visual aid to communicate a greater truth. But I don't think that we're dealing with an actual ceremony that Jesus is instituting with his disciples. I know if somebody wanted to wash my feet, I would consider it hor horribly awkward. I bathe, then I put on socks and shoes, and my feet are relatively clean. This is not a helpful, practical thing. But if you're looking for a list of ways to help me and serve me, I could make a list rather easily. Some more practical ways than simply washing the feet. But here's what Jesus is trying to say to his disciples. He's telling them to serve one another. Now, here's what I want you to receive. The motivation for service is what Jesus is giving to his men at this point. He knows that they're about to go through an era of persecution and difficulty and rapid expansion of the gospel, uh, such as the world has rarely seen. He knows that they don't even know what is coming. And he knows how much they will need one another and how much they will need to serve one another. He sees this, but they don't. But Jesus wants them to receive the proper motivation for serving one another. Because I think sometimes we walk out of church services or read the word of God encouraged to serve. And our motivation is entirely fleshly. But here's the motivation to serve. If Jesus, the King of glory, if Jesus, the creator of the universe, was not above serving us, then we are not above serving one another. It's not because others are perfect that we serve. It's not because it is fulfilling that we serve. It's not because of status that we might receive that we serve. No, it's because the king of glory was not above serving us. And so Jesus here gives his disciples the motivation for ministry, the motivation for serving others. And the motivation is clear. And perhaps you've served the Lord and served the church because, well, it feels so good. Perhaps you've served the church because... Uh, you believe that it will be fulfilling in, in your heart and life. And those reasons may last for a moment, but they will not last for a lifetime. The motivation that lasts for a lifetime is this. He served me, so I long to serve the church. Well, next time we'll pick it up and see Jesus continue this teaching uh, with his disciples. God bless you and amen. 
Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.